0: The following audio is from Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com. It's good to be here, amen? We're few in number today, but I I was thinking about this all week long. I knew all week long that we would come to this day and we would be be very sparse in this place. And I gotta tell you, I was really kind of letting that weigh on me all week long. And uh, and this morning, it just, finally God just sort of, I think got me by the shirt collar and said, look, if they don't show up today, it's not your church. It's my church. So get over it, right? And so we're, we're, not, we're not faulting anyone for taking a break. Vacations are good. Uh, but but I, I would just encourage you as your pastor this summer to be very vigilant to be here, uh, to not check out for the summer, uh, but to be here because our God is indeed worthy of our worship. And Hebrews tells us that we're not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. And so I would just encourage you to be here. And, uh, and, and we, don't, we don't have any, any ground today to say, you know, those people that aren't here, they don't love Jesus like I do. Because that's not true, is it? Not true at all. But what we're here to do today is to worship our God because he's entirely worthy. Amen? Amen. Well, let me, let me... Read this text before I do, let me just ask you this question and set this text up we 'll be looking at verses twelve through fifteen but how can have you ever known anybody or known two people that have come from the same family, maybe siblings raised by the same family, experienced the same things growing up, had had all the same traditions, all the same holiday plans, all of those same things? Have you ever known anybody where Siblings come out and they are extremely different. You ever know anybody like that? And you sit and you you look at them and you say, How how did how did that happen? Right? Maybe maybe it's the way they look or maybe it's the way they, they act or or whatever the case may be. Sometimes you come to people in church and you and you say your your brother or your sister, they seem to hate God. They seem to hate the idea of of church or Christianity, but you you seem to have been so touched by Christ, and you're here, and, and you seem to love the Lord so much. What happened along the way? Maybe you are that sibling, or maybe you you have someone very close to you that's in that same situation. And you've maybe wondered, how does this happen? I I have a, a sister. I have two sisters. I was the middle child uh, on both ends by by girls. Uh, Clay can feel my pain, right? But I have an older sister and a younger sister, and my older sister, um, today I love her and uh, and have, have a decent relationship with her. It's strained largely because for most of her life, even going back into her teenage years, she has been um, on drugs and alcohol and she has been in and out of jail and and these and so I, I don't i don't condemn my sister but but i look in and i say we had the same experience growing up with the same parents with the same church we had the same uh same things that that happened in our lives so god what has led me to the place where i am not in an ivory tower looking down on my sister what has also led my sister though to where she is And that's the question I want to get at today. I don't want you to hear me saying that I'm somehow better. That's not it at all. I want you to hear today the grace in where I am today, not anything that I have done, but the grace of God. And I want you to hear today. I want us to ask this question, how do two people end up really very, very differently? We see this in Scripture. We see this in the case of Moses and the Israelites, Both Moses and the Israelites both came out of Egypt, didn't they? They both saw God miraculously deliver them from the Egyptian army when he parted the sea there. And they crossed over on dry land. Both of them experienced want and hunger and thirst in the wilderness. Both of them saw God provide through manna and water from the rock and all these things. But the Israelites seemed to constantly be known by their grumbling and complaining and doubting and wondering, saying things like, God, did you bring us out here to die? They spoke to Moses, but Moses was God's representative, and they seemed to always sort of question and doubt and grumble, and they were quick to bitterness. But Moses, while he wasn't perfect and he faltered, he was a man of faith. And even though he didn't get to lead that generation into the promised land, he never gave up faith and believing that God would indeed fulfill that promise to lead them into this promised land. So how how are these two so different? Well, I would tell you today that we've been in James chapter 1, and the subject of James chapter 1 largely is about trials, and specifically about tests. And one of the the reasons uh, that uh, two people can end up very differently having come through the same thing is directly tied to how they respond when God tests us. And that's what I want you to see today in this passage. So let's look at James chapter 1, and let's read together. I'll I'll read, you follow along, verses 12 through 15. James here says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and He Himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. I want to show you some things out of this passage today about trials. The first of which is this. If you're taking notes, this is the first point. Trials are meant to bless you. Trials are meant to bless you. Um, you say, well, that did not make much sense. That's easy for you to say standing up there. You don't know what I'm going through. Trust me on this. Look to the Word of God, the Word of God. Truth for you today, this is what it says. The very first thing he says is blessed is the man who stands up under these trials, right? So trials are meant to be Blessing to us. This word blessed is the word that is translated happy. We see this translated this way sometimes in the Psalms. Sometimes we see this in uh, in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus preached there in Matthew chapters 5 through 7. Blessed is, blessed is, and it's translated happy. But here, James, nor Jesus when he's talking about this, doesn't have in mind this transient emotional state that often comes along with things like a a good meal, watching a good movie, sharing a laugh with friends, but instead the blessing, the happiness that he talks about here is the happiness that that is lasting, it is joy that goes much deeper into the very core and soul of who we are, that, that doesn't ebb and flow with circumstances, but it's there always. I don't know if you heard a few weeks ago when I was talking about this very same subject, and Charles Collins was, was out here that day. He's not here with us today, but Charles has in, in recent months been diagnosed with a brain tumor and, and has been told that there's really not a whole lot they can do. It's terminal. It's going to take his life. And when I mentioned this, that, that Christ gives joy that cannot be taken no matter what comes your way, one single solitary amen came from this congregation, and it was his. That's what I'm talking about. That's what James here is talking about. Trials have a way of bringing us blessing, this joy that we wouldn't know any other way. God sends trials into our lives to test and to strengthen our faith. We saw that in verses 2 through 4 in this chapter. James says, hey, count it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter trials of various kinds. He's saying there that that when we count it joy, we have an opportunity to see them for what they are, knowing that the the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So we know that in one sense, the blessing God intends is when, when sending trials our way is so that we might learn to trust him in it. That we might stand up under those, trusting that he knows what's best, so that it produces in us a maturity of character, that we grow in the Lord. But there is a second blessing here that is explicit in our text. It it is said for us in the words, When he has stood the test of time, the test, he will receive the crown of life. So it's not this, it's not simply this present now blessing of what will happen in this life in the same way that a, that a football player who's, who, who can't stand the weight room anymore, who can't stand two-a-days, who doesn't, doesn't, doesn't want to go through another practice and thinks that the, the coach is just too hard and it's too hot and can't we have a break, but only appreciates those in the season. There's there's a a blessing here that we will not appreciate until we get to the final end. And we receive here, he says, the the crown of life. If verses 2 through 4, if if those reveal the, the benefits we receive in this life from trials, then verse 12 reveals to us the final, ultimate blessing. And it is the crown of life. Now, let me, let me be your teacher for just a minute this morning, just a few minutes, and let this be less like a sermon, me preaching at you, and turn on your listening ears and listen and learn a little bit from Scripture today. We have several misconceptions about these crowns that we see mentioned in the Bible. We, we read about crowns of righteousness and crowns of glory and crowns of life, and one of the misconceptions that we have about these crowns is we see them as these royal diadems that are made of gold and precious stones, and that there's going to come a day when, when we're going to receive these golden crowns. But this is not an accurate picture of what he means. When he says here, the one who perseveres under trial will receive the crown of life, it's not this golden, precious, stone-studded crown, but instead it's more like this greenery, this laurel wreath that was often placed on the heads of the athletes, particularly the athlete that that won the race. Here's the difference. Here's why I say every athlete knows that it would be foolish to expect to run a grueling race and to actually win that race without putting down weeks and months of sacrifice and discipline and training no no athlete goes out there and says you know <laughs> haven't been training at all in fact i just finished a hot dog let's do this thing you know nobody does that expects to win they train for weeks and months maybe years even if you look at olympic athletes four years between the olympics and they train and they discipline their bodies and they don't eat anything bad for them in the course of four years with the hopes that they might get a medal that's the understanding here, this is not a crown given to someone of privileged position. And this is the way many believers see it, that one day we'll come into heaven and, and we, will, we will receive these golden crowns because of who we are. But instead, we will receive these crowns, these humble crowns for the discipline and, and the steadfastness that we exert here. When we finish the race, it's, that's the type of crown that, that we're going to receive. There's another misconception. Sometimes we hear people say, you know, I hope that one day I, one, one day I hear Jesus say to me, that, you know, here, here I'm giving to you this crown of glory or this crown of righteousness. And we treat these crowns like they are just a small pile of limited crowns that only a few super Christians are going to receive. The reality is that's not the picture at all either. These are not limited to only a few super Christians but instead these are going to be for every believer who endures to the end. For every saint who perseveres because God indeed has promised the crown these crowns to every believer who remains faithful. Listen to this, 2 Timothy chapter 4 verse 8 says, henceforth, Paul says, There is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. So Paul says, look, I, you know, we would look at, at Paul and we would say, as someone who wrote over half of the New Testament in our Bibles, we would say that's probably a super Christian. Look around. Anybody sitting close to you, have written, they wrote a book of the Bible? Anybody around you done that? He wrote at least thirteen letters that have become books in the New Testament. I would say Paul is a super Christian. Paul says it's not just me, but it's all who have loved his appearing. It's all who have lived their lives in such a way that they longed to see him return. Paul says it's 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 every believer who endures to the end. Revelation chapter two verse ten to the church in Smyrna, I believe he says Jesus says, "Do not fear what you are about to suffer." Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. So the idea here is not these crowns given to those who simply privileged in their position, but there will be crowns awarded in this day to those who live their lives enduring whatever trials may come. The truth is, we have these misconceptions about these crowns, but the truth is this. These are not royal crowns made of righteousness or life or glory, but instead they are life itself. The crown is life itself. It's not a crown that will be placed on your head. It's life itself. That is the prize. It's righteousness itself. It's glory itself. That's the crown. So, when I say to you, trials are meant to bless you, this is what we're talking about. That this is how we enter into glory. Acts tells us that through many tribulations we must enter into glory. Well, how do we do this And How? How do we receive these rewards, life and glory and, and, and righteousness and these things that are promised to those who endure? How do, how do we receive these? Well, that's in our text as well. Verses Verse 12, the first part of it, verse A, it's for those who remain steadfast under trial. But there's one other. The very last part of verse 12 says, to those that love God, to those that love Him. Listen to what Daniel Doriani said. Daniel Doriani has written a commentary that I'm using to help me in preparation for this series. Listen, he says, our quest for crowns is mistaken if we seek literal bands of gold. Rather, the, the crown of life is life itself, life eternal with God. The crown of righteousness is righteousness itself, the righteousness of Christ given in full measure to where the crown is to stand forever in a loving relationship with the King. So many people live their lives as, as believers talking about these streets of gold and talking about the reward at the end. And what happens is, if we're not careful, we begin to live more for the reward, which is self-serving, than we do to live for the king and to serve him. If what I said, if what Daniel Doriani has just said, that these crowns that we seek are not literal bands of gold, but instead they are life itself and righteousness itself, living in perfect relationship with God. If, If that's true... Is that enough for you? Is that enough for you to know that you will live eternally with Christ? Is that enough for you? Doriani goes on and he says, The prime source of our endurance when trials come our way is not a grim determination to do our duty and collect our reward, but instead it is the love of God. See, the way that you endure in trials is not to grit your teeth and pull yourself up by your bootstraps and do your duty. The way that as a believer you endure in trials is you love God. Because you can't endure if you don't love God. Isn't that true? If, if you don't love God, when trials come your way, you'll reach a point where it's a breaking point and you'll say, I'm done with this. I've had enough of this. This is not worth it. I, I'm, I'm walking out of this. Isn't that true? But if there is a love of God that is deep and residing, and because He first loved you, and you've seen it in the gospel, and it is beautiful and glorious, and how could you ever go back? Then no matter what comes your way, you will endure, you will persevere. Uh, Alec Mautier is another commentator, and he says this. He says, uh, Our progress to the crown is expedited not by our powers of endurance, but by the depth of our love for Him. You want to you make your way, you want to make progress toward heaven? You want to make progress toward this crown of life and crown of righteousness and crown? You want to make progress toward this? Love Him. Love him all the more. Here's what I would say to you: Make it practical to the to the young, new Christian who is overzealous. The type of Christian I don't know if you remember what it was like when you first became a believer, but you were so gung ho and so eager. You would do anything. You'd show up at church early. You'd show up whatever whatever they were doing. You'd you'd show up for it. I mean, you know, WMU's meeting, and you're a guy. You know, you just show up. You know, for you know, hey, you need something? I'll be here. You know these are the when you're a new believer you're so zealous to do anything you know it, the expression is you take on hell with a water pistol right these to to this person to the young christian let me tell you what your first and foremost number one priority job number one is love God love God to the elderly saint who health is is, is waning away and time keeps passing on and, and, and you keep wondering, why does God keep leaving me here? Lana's great-grandmother lived to be almost 102 years old and I heard her say it multiple times, I don't know why he keeps leaving me here. And someone would always come back and, and, and with, with, a, with a wise statement and they would say, well, he must not be through with you yet, Granny. He's got something else for you to do. Could I just pose to you, elderly saint who wonders why he's leaving you here? It could be that the only thing he has left for you to do is to love him till the end. Love him till the end. Maybe that's another six months, maybe that's a year, maybe that's five, ten years more. You don't know, but love him till the end. There may not be anything great in the world's esteem or in the world's eyes that you might do in these twilight years of your life. But in the eyes of God, the greatest thing you could do is love Him. Blessed is the man who, or the woman who remains steadfast under trial. For when He stood the test, He will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love Him. Well, how do you do that? How do you love Him? Spending a lot of time on this first point, I know, but. It'll move quicker after this. But how do you love God? What are practical ways that you love him? Well, number one, when we come in this place, I was thinking about this when we were singing, and it's quiet in here because there's few of us. And, and sometimes when the, music, when, the, when the instruments would kind of drop out, you could hear voices. But one of the things, one of the ways you love him is you sing together with God's people. You sing loudly. Anybody ever like to sing in your car, song on the radio? Uh, I remember, I remember in, uh, in Georgia before I came here, I was a youth pastor there, and I was uh, out running some errands, and, and it was a beautiful day. It was sunny, and it was not too hot, and I just had all the windows down, had the sunroof open, and I, I was blasting some, some uh, contemporary worship song. I don't remember what it was, but I, I was just blasting this song, and I came pulling back into the church parking lot, and, uh, and there was Clyde. Clyde was uh, retired Uh, pastor who had been brought on staff part-time and he worked uh, largely with outreach and things like that and he was very dignified and I come wheeling in there and I've got this thing blasting right and I'm singing at the top of my lungs well what did I do first thing I see Clyde hey Clyde right you ever been busted at a traffic light you're in your car and you're singing loud with this song whatever it is and someone pulls up next to you what do you do you just turn it off, right? This is one of the only places on the planet here in your shower that you're encouraged to sing loud, to make a fool of yourself in this place because you love God, right? You ought to be able to do that here. It's one of the ways you love God. Secondly, though, is another way you can love God is that you're eager in your witness. That you, you love to talk about the Lord, that you love to name his name, that you love to work him in the conversation. And I don't mean doing this in weird ways, you know. I don't mean when somebody, somebody says, man, sure it's hot today. You say, well, you know, it's hot here. It's going to be really hot in hell. You know Jesus? You, know, you, you don't do stuff that's just weird and makes people uncomfortable, right? But you ought to love to talk about him. You ought to be quick to talk about him. You love God when you're diligent in your walk. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll obey me. Sometimes that's going to mean that you are going to be weird, that you're going to be on the outs, that you're going to be refraining from things that everyone else is doing, or that you're going to be participating in and doing things that no one else is doing. But sometimes loving the Lord means being the only one that will stand when everyone else is sitting down. These are ways you love the Lord. Well, in the middle of the trial, though, there's temptation that comes. There's always temptation that comes in the middle of the trial. And Paul or, or James here is addressing these scattered believers that have been put out into situations and circumstances where they are not with their families, they're away from their homes, they are being persecuted, they are under trial at the moment, and he knows that for many of them where they are, there will be this temptation. not temptation in general, but a temptation. Particular that will come their way, and it will be this. Trials often come with the temptation to blame God. There's oftentimes a temptation to blame God. That's why he says here in verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. This is exactly what Adam did. When, he, when, when, when he's in the garden, God comes looking for him, Eve's just taken the fruit from the tree. They both have just eaten. I don't know if you've thought about this, but if you, if you read the text, it's obvious that while Eve is the one who takes the fruit and eats from the tree, the Bible makes it clear that Adam's standing there. And as the leader of this first family that he's passively standing by, letting the serpent lead his wife into temptation and sin. And so what Adam does is when God comes looking for him, he tries to blame. And first he tries to blame Eve, that woman, right? But he quickly goes, that woman that you gave me. And this is the tendency when trials come is we look for someone else that must be the scapegoat. And oftentimes what happens is there's no one else to blame, so God must get the blame. And it will take the form of someone saying something like, if God really loved me, he'd put an end to this. If God really cared about me, he wouldn't wouldn't put me in this situation. If God expected me not to do this, then he would have made me different than I am. See, people will blame and excuse their behavior and look for someone to blame and blame God if there's no one else to be found. Whether it's adultery, whether it's, Embezzlement, whether it's pornography, whether it's simple greed, whatever the case may be, people will look for someone to blame, and if no one else can be blamed, they will blame God in the middle of it. But James here says God cannot be blamed for this. He says God cannot be tempted with evil. Literally means untemptable. That God is untemptable. That He is without the capacity for temptation. MacArthur says it's the same as being invincible to assaults of evil. That he has no vulnerability to evil and is utterly impregnable to its onslaughts. This is our God. Let me give you just current day pictures of this. Anybody watch Superman growing up? Anybody a fan of Superman? What was Superman's one weakness? Kryptonite, right? The picture here is God has no kryptonite. God has no kryptonite. Anybody a fan of, uh, of uh, the Hobbit, Lord of the Rings, that kind of thing? The Hobbit, Smaug, the, the dragon that's the fire-breathing dragon that's, that's guarding this lair. He has one place under his belly that is susceptible and vulnerable to this, this arrow that might pierce him there. God has no pla- such place. Sin can't penetrate. He's sin and God like water and oil. You can, you can try to shake those things together, but set them down and they will quickly separate. God cannot be penetrated with, cannot be tempted with evil. It is an impossibility. Not only that, but He Himself tempts no one, James says. Lots of people picture God like a brand-new cop just out of the academy, just hired to the force, and just given his first radar gun. He hides out, even takes extra measures to find that perfect hiding place where you will come over that hill and not expecting him. He'll find that place that's right where the speed changes. Ever been caught in one of those? Drops from 55 to 35 and... He'll sit right there. And when he comes to your window, he comes with a smug grin on his face. Sir, do you know why I pulled you over? I'll tell you why. You know, and he's real quick to tell you. Lots of people picture God like this. That God is just looking to trap us. That he just wants to, wants to swoop in and wants to bring us into sin. He, he lays these traps for us. He's the one who put that woman at my work. He's the one who gave me these genes. That's G-E-N-E. That's not the other. Um, He's the... Lots of people look at him that way. They think that he is the one who's tempting them. James makes it clear. In the middle of his trial, don't be tempted to say, God's at fault. While God never tempts, though, he does test. Abraham... Take your only son, Isaac, lay him on the altar and sacrifice him. Why? Why why would God do that? Only to get to the point where Abraham, knife in hand, raised to the air, where he can provide the rescue. The ram caught in a thicket. Abraham, now I know that you love me. He tests us to prove our love, to deepen our love for him. We see this in the case of the Israelites. You're hungry, you're in the wilderness, I understand that. I will provide for you bread from heaven, but here's my one law about this. Don't, don't pick up more than you need for that day. What do the Israelites do? We don't, we don't know if he's going to give it again tomorrow. We better get what we can get right now, Right? We don't know the character of God. We don't know that he's good. Isn't he the one that brought them out of Egypt? And they pick up all this bread, this manna from heaven, and they keep it till the next morning, only to find in the morning it is filled with maggots and worms and it is spoiled overnight. Why does one pass the test and the other fail the test? In the Greek here, the same word can be either a test or a trial or a temptation. The context is what what determines its meaning. And here in this context, we see that in verse 12, obviously the word here means a test. Look at verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. When God's sending this test, he's steadfast there because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love Him. God sends tests to us. But in verse 13, that same word doesn't mean test. This time now it means temptation. Let no one say when he is tempted. See, trials can become temptation quickly, right? Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. I want you to beware of this, church. There is always a temptation in the midst of trials to accuse God of being evil and sadistic when what he's really doing is holy, and it is loving, and it is for your good. Don't fall for that. Resist the temptation to blame him in the middle of what he's doing for your good. See, they're not the same thing. A trial is not the same thing as a temptation but a trial can quickly turn into a temptation, so resist that. Submit to God, trust Him, and love Him. Let me give you just one more closing point um, that will be a long point. i will cover 14 and 15, but, uh, but let, me, let me finish out this text. Instead of blaming God, we need to accept responsibility. In verse 14, he says, Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. This Next point is this, temptation comes from within. Temptation comes from within. Verse 14 there, it comes from within. Each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. You expect at this moment that, to think that, well, in the middle of this trial, God's doing something for my good. If a temptation comes to me, he, you expect him to say, look, Satan's going to be trying to lead you away. Watch out for him. But he doesn't. He doesn't blame the devil here. He doesn't, he doesn't blame Satan at all. Now, does James deny the fact that Satan is real and that he does tempt us? No. Later on in the book, in chapter 4, he will say, he will give explicit testimony to the fact of what the devil tries to do. But here he doesn't give the blame to the devil. Instead, he puts the blame where it belongs and he puts it on us. Doriani again says, if a test becomes a temptation, it is sinful human nature that makes it so. I heard one commentator say this. That I'll, I'll paraphrase. I didn't write it down. But basically he said that, um, that if we had no sin nature, the, the devil's temptings wouldn't be that tempting to us. Wouldn't you say that's true? I, he's not saying that we, we could not be tempted because we're not God. Adam and Eve had no sin nature when the serpent came slithering in the first time. They were tempted, but wouldn't you say that there? Sometimes that it's not it's, if we didn't have the sin nature, the things that he presents before us wouldn't be that appealing to us. We wouldn't be drawn to them like we are now. But we've all been infected with the same pathogen that Adam and Eve, our first parents, were infected with. That, like them, we're susceptible to the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. We're just like them. Watch the course of sin here in verses 14 and 15. He says, first off, that each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Now, everybody has desires. And the reality is, you need to hear me say this morning that desire is not the same thing as sin. Some of you are walking around constantly in these feelings of guilt, defeated, Simply because you have certain desires. But you're not acting on them. But these desires, you can't seem to shake them. You can't get rid of them. You need to hear that desire is not the same thing as sin. I, I have a feeling, I have a sneaking suspicion, I'm pretty confident that when Jesus spent 40 days in the wilderness and didn't eat at all during that 40 days, when Satan came to him and tempted, to him, tempted him with, you must be hungry. Look, turn these stones into bread eat. There's no reason why you shouldn't eat. I would would be willing to say that Jesus in his humanity in that moment wanted bread. I think he desired bread. If right now, I mean, I ate this morning before I came here. If right now the very mention of bread to me goes, you know, hey, I tell you where he's got some good bread, and I can begin to go there, I think Jesus in his humanity after 40 days without anything to eat would have thought, Boy, you know, a roll would be great right now. Desires not wrong. Jesus is without sin. You need to hear me say today that just because you have desires, it doesn't mean that you're sinning. It's not the same thing. But look how quickly desire becomes sin. Each one is tempted when he is lured and enticed. This language here is a fishing metaphor. Um, it's... Any, any fishermen in the room, fisherwomen in the room? Anybody like to fish? Uh, yeah, looking back there, it's a good section right back there. You guys like to fish. Uh, I'm not going to ask who's, who the best fisherman is in that because I'm pretty sure Sherry is, is the best, best fisherwoman in that. But um, fish are smart, but fish are also dumb, aren't they? Sometimes they're so smart you try to catch them and it doesn't matter what you do, they're not biting, you, you can't get them to bite your hook. But sometimes they're dumb. I mean, they're just out and out dumb. Imagine being a fish down there on the bottom of the lake and look around. You're down there with your buddy and all of a sudden you see your buddy swims over and he takes a bite of something and all of a sudden he's just yanked from there to the surface. What what was that about? You're swimming around and all of a sudden you see that same thing come back down to you and it's, it's there, same thing he bit. And imagine saying to yourself, I think I'll give that a try and biting this thing. Don't fish do that? I'm not sure they reason like that, but uh, but uh, but that, that's fish are, are dumb sometimes. I once had, uh, more than once, I have as a kid thrown a bear hook into the water and watched fish swim up and bite a bear hook and pull it out of the river. More than once. Why, why would you do that as a fish? It's a hook, right? One time I got on a... Um, 13, 14 years old, up in the mountains of East Tennessee, down from my grandparents lived, walked down there to the river, very shallow, very fast-moving water, over rocks, lots of white water, and I had this, uh, this rooster tail spinning bait. And I wasn't very equipped for this, but my uncle, before I left the house that day, Denzel told me, look, when you, when you go down there, if you're going to fish here, you've you got to keep that bait moving, because if you don't keep it moving, it's going to get hung up on the bottom. So keep it moving. Well, I took that and I cast out across the river, almost to the other side, and immediately began to reel and reel it back and watch the current take it and reel it back in closer to me. And I found one particular rock where when I brought that little shiny piece of metal on the back of that rooster tail, when it would spin by there, that fish couldn't resist, and he came out and he attacked that, and all of a sudden, it wasn't so much me reeling or the force of the water, but he was taking my lure and my line, and I reeled him in, and I put him on my stringer, I thought, let's try that again. Took that same rooster tail spinnerbait, and I cast out again, brought it by that same rock, pow, Again. I did this about five or six times, and each time there was another fish that could not resist the flash of that spin. I got on a a school of them, and it was great. That's the picture here. The picture is that we are like fish. Satan knows when to come and tempt. He's not omniscient, but he does sit on the bank of our life and watch and see our habits, and see our patterns, and he studies us, and he knows what to present us with. He knows our nature. And it's our nature that when that thing comes across our path, that we're drawn away, that we're lured and enticed, that we're dragged away from what we know to be right. Men, some of you in this room, go on a business trip, you know you know your tendencies and you know that you shouldn't be in that room by yourself alone at night with those channels on that TV. You know that. But somehow it's just too enticing. You say, well, I'm not a, I'm not a fish. I, I would never fall for anything like that. To which I would say, oh, yeah. Sometimes all it takes for you and for me is for us to drive by a certain car lot and see a particular vehicle and think, well, I'd like to have that. You weren't even thinking about a new car before that, but all of a sudden it's, I'd like to have that. And before long, it's everything you can think about. It's all you want to think about is that. Or ladies, maybe you're in an elevator and you smell a certain cologne and it takes you back to a past boyfriend and it's the same cologne. And all of a sudden you begin to have these romantic thoughts and thinking back to history. Before you know it, you're, Thinking about all sorts of things. How quickly I've got to move very quickly, but how quickly sin or desire becomes sin. Each of us here's some truths about desire. Each of us have our own. We should be aware of them, and we should know when we're more susceptible to those than others. We should know that sometimes when we're tired, we don't need to be in certain places we should know what our desires are and make preparation to avoid them in fact we should this is number 3 here take radical steps to avoid these desires let me just close out with this I'm out of time I'll, I'll just say this desires not the same thing as sin but how quickly desire turns into sin look at the language Verses 14 and 15, a person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. The desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. The picture is, desire is not sin, but how quickly it conceives and gives birth to sin. The image here is of childbirth and how How that sin sometimes, while it was a mistake and we fell into it, sometimes we nurture it and we watch it grow. And maybe it grows slowly over time, but it develops and it takes root and it takes hold in our life to the point where what it promised in the beginning, it cannot deliver, and it ultimately brings death. James here knows that there are some out there that are believers, and they're tempted with this thought of, Blaming God in the midst of their situation. And he warns these believers to to refrain from this, to stray away from this. He knows how quickly this desire can conceive and give birth to this sin. But I believe he's also talking to those out there that, that I would also talk to this morning. That in every church that has ever existed, there will always be those who are believers. And there will also always be those that are Not true believers that have somehow, some way been convinced that they know Christ, that they're okay with God, but they're really not. They're not saved, and their behavior shows it. And James says, Look, if this is the pattern of your life, constantly following these desires and watching them conceive and give birth to sin, know that if this is the pattern of your life, you're not headed for life, you're headed for death. The conclusion in this passage is this. Why are two people different who've been raised in the same circumstances? It all has to do with how you respond to these trials when they come. You have two ways, two roads, two paths that you can take in any test. First is you can meet it with endurance, with the strength of the Lord, and you can allow it to make you strong in Him, mature and complete. This way will lead to life, or the other way is... You can meet that trial with selfishness, wanting what you want and demanding your way, and you can watch it lead you into sin and ultimately to death. You know people that that have gone this way. Maybe you're right now in the middle of a trial, and there is a temptation for you to blame God, or maybe you're right in the middle of being tempted for something else. Let me just encourage you and challenge you to meet that trial with endurance. Trust the Lord. Love him more than you love your own comfort and your own desires. Resist that temptation and watch him over the course of your life conform you to the image of Christ. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, this text is, is a, it's a poignant one. God, we come to this weekend where lots of our people are gone. And, Lord, the temptation in my heart is to say that, boy, I wish a lot of people would have been here to to hear this passage. But the reality is, God, you're sovereign. And you know exactly what's needed. And, Lord, I I believe that the people who really need to hear this most are here. God, I'm one of them. I'm so... Weak in the middle of temptation and so easily distracted and so easily pulled out from under that rock. God, I pray in this place, Lord, that you would teach us, Lord, to to trust you, to rest in you, to persevere under trials because we love you more than we love ourselves in this world. God, work in us. Conform us to the image of Christ, I pray. In his name, amen. We want to give you an opportunity to respond. I don't know how you need to respond. I'm, I'm not the Holy Spirit. But the Word of God has been preached to you, and the Holy Spirit will apply and minister that Word. And you know if He's calling you to some action right now. Maybe you're here, and you're in the middle of a temptation, and you need someone to pray with you. You need to con- confess some things maybe. I just want you to know that I'd love to help you with that. I'll be right down here at the front row. I'd love for you to just come and let me pray with you. You can also go out of this room and go over to, to our prayer room right on the other side of that wall. And there are some believers that would love to, to just spend some time with you praying. Not in a judgmental way. They're not going to hear what you say and then go out and talk to everybody and say, You won't believe what? This is not confession. In a a Roman Catholic sort of way, this is not you coming to a priest. We only have one mediator, and that's Christ. But the Bible does tell us that we should confess our sins to one another to find strength in brothers and sisters. And so if that can be a help, then do that. The, The worst thing you can do is right now know that you're in the middle, on the verge of temptation or right in the middle of sin and feel the conviction of the Spirit of God calling you to repent and turn from it and trust Christ. And the worst thing you can do is to say, uh, I, I, think I, can, I think I can beat this I think I got this it's your own desires it's your own flesh that's pulling you away and I would just challenge you to reach out and find some help with me or a believer that ultimately will help you to trust in Christ he's your only hope If you're here today and you don't know Christ as your Savior, and you're tired of life just seeming to get the best of you all the time, you're tired of being weary and you're tired of having the emptiness that you feel, you know today that you are a sinner and you need to be forgiven and made right with God, then I'd love for you to come talk to me. You don't have to come talk to me. You can go talk to one of them. If, if they can't help you, I feel pretty confident they, they can. But if, if there's questions that they can't help you with, then they'll get you the help you need. But I want to just encourage you and challenge you to turn from your sin and trust Christ today. You'll never find hope without Him. You'll never find freedom. You'll never find peace. You'll never find fullness without Him. So whatever it is, God's leading you to today. Be quick to obey. Let's worship our God. This time of teaching is brought to you by Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com.